This month, the world will meet at Davos in a very special World Economic Forum annual meeting. The Summer Davos will bring together governments, business and civil society groups from around the globe to look at the biggest issues in a world emerging from the pandemic and facing a starkly altered geopolitical landscape. And you can keep up with all the action on the World Economic Forum's podcasts. I'm Robin Pomeroy, host of Radio Davos, and we'll be podcasting daily to bring you to the heart of the meeting with highlights from the sessions, interviews with some of the world's sharpest minds, and exclusive glimpses behind the scenes. I'm Linda Lucina, and our special mini Davos edition episodes of Meet the Leader will pose timely questions to leaders from business, government, and civil society, giving you quick takes on the biggest issues of our day. Don't miss it. For full coverage of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos 2022, subscribe now to Radio Davos and Meet the Leader wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, as we approach the forum's annual meeting in Davos, we look at one of the biggest challenges facing the globe, energy. We still have a lot of economic models, even models about decarbonisation, where we refer to something called the business as usual. Under climate change, if we do not decarbonise, it's so disruptive, there is no business as usual. So how do we leave behind business as usual and achieve the urgently needed transition away from fossil fuels and to clean energy, while ensuring people around the world can get access to reliable, affordable energy? It's very clear that slow and steady at this point is not going to win the race. There is a need to urgently accelerate the energy transition. The World Economic Forum has been tracking global progress on that energy transition for a decade and has just released a special report fostering effective energy transition 2022 looking at where things stand at this extraordinary moment in history where energy supplies are under pressure as perhaps never seen before on this episode we'll hear from the authors of that report and other experts discussing the challenges of energy transition and crucially where things need to go from here now we are saying in the next 10 years we're going to do radical changes so we need all the elements we discussed the funding the legislation etc we also need one other element paradigm shift in partnership. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and with this panel discussion about the global energy transition. There's a reason why we call it an energy transition. It doesn't go from A to B overnight. This is Radio Davos. And welcome to our session, Fostering an Effective Energy Transition 2022. I'm John Defteris. It's a pleasure to chair this dialogue as such a critical window in time. The special edition builds on the WEF's Energy Transition Index, which I would encourage everyone watching to read and read carefully. The latest assessment by the IPCC underscores the need to peak global greenhouse gas emissions by 2025 and for them to decline rapidly thereafter. Easier said than done with the challenging mix, I would say, of environmental macroeconomic and geopolitical factors that we're witnessing uh, today. It's all about responding to short-term emergencies while planning for the medium and long-term to tackle the biggest challenge of our generation, perhaps of our lifetime, and that, of course, is climate change. We have a terrific uh, panel. Let me formally introduce them. First, Roberto Boca is the head of platform for shaping the future of energy, materials, and infrastructure for the World Economic Forum. Muxit Ashraf is a senior managing director at Global Energy lead for Accenture, which is the co-author of this uh, special edition. Dev Sanyol is the chief executive officer of Varo Energy based in Switzerland. And Jesse Scott is the international director of Agora Energiewende. 
and adjunct professor of Hurti School. It's great to have you all, but I wanted to bring in Roberto and Muxit first because you've worked on this report together. Uh, it is a special edition. At this juncture, what are we learning about the pace of the transition and the external challenges that I was referring to in my opening comments? Roberta? Thank you, John. The current contest, I like the need for a rapid energy transition, and not only from the climate, but also from the security point of view. In our report, as we have done for several years, we underline the need to address the transition in a holistic manner, including and beyond the environmental dimension. So this is point one. Point two, what we are seeing in the analysis is that in our report is that we are seeing progress in the transition, but this progress is not fast enough and is also not resilient enough to the increased volatility of the current environment, economical, geopolitical, environmental. So progress, yes, but not fast enough and not resilient enough. And point three is that many decisions that we are seeing at the moment are addressing the supply side of the energy system, and that is what needs to happen. But in our report, we underline in great detail the opportunity and the need to address also the demand side to transform the way energy is consumed at an individual level for all of us and at the industrial level. And then when we look at the demand side, we also underline the importance of taking care of the most vulnerable. Those people in energy poverty with low or no access to affordable energy in emerging market, but also in mature market. So to conclude, it is a critical that the transition addresses all the imperatives of the energy system, the sustainability, the security, and the affordability. Back to you, John. Okay, Roberto, thanks very much. You, you flagged uh, some topics I want uh, to raise later in the conversation. That is what we should expect at COP27 in Egypt and COP28 uh, taking place in the UAE and that balance between the energy transition and providing access. I, I think the narrative may change uh, with those two meetings in the Middle East. Let's bring in Muxit and, and glean what you think uh, is happening in the energy transition. The question I always get asked by everybody that's involved in this uh, arena. Does it slow down because of the shocks I talked about, Muxit? Let me just build on what uh, Roberto said, which uh, would start to address your questions as well, right? So I think one of the aspects that Roberto ended on was around energy security. And it's clear from the work we've done that that has emerged to also your question as a key concern uh, for many of the countries that weren't as much uh, thinking about it uh, of late, at least. What we've found is that a dual diversification, as we call it, of supply is extremely important. That is diversification of supply partners in the short term, and then also a diversification of the supply mix of the sources of energy in the long term can reduce the exposure countries have to uh, the availability of energy. The second aspect uh, that has emerged is it's very clear that you cannot de-link energy uh, transition or energy sustainability from energy security, right? Mm. Uh, and so there might be a little bit of a, a rethink around should we go brown or should we go green in the short term? But it's very clear that energy, clean energy can be a win-win scenario for countries uh, from a security and sustainability standpoint. So diversifying the energy mix with domestic renewables and other low carbon energy sources will drive down the need for energy imports and contribute to, uh, to climate goals as well. Uh, a, a very important third aspect that we touched on this time in the work we did 
is the role of industry. The industries contribute about 30% to the global greenhouse gas emissions. And they are the ones that really face massive challenges to decarbonize. Uh, so they need help and, uh, and they require an ambitious multi-stakeholder collaboration. Uh, that is gonna be very important for them to bring out of box solutions. And so we're exploring several of these models in the report uh, that you mentioned. Overall, I mean, it's very clear that slow and steady at this point is not going to win the race. Uh, there is a need to urgently accelerate the energy transition, and that was very clear, uh, irrespective of the geopolitical uh, circumstances and, and or any other disruptions, including ones emerging from the pandemic. And the current market scenario, as volatile as it is, it actually really presents a unique opportunity to really supercharge the energy transition while building up resilience in the energy systems. I guess the final point being winning the race will require stakeholders at every level to really step up and work together on ramping up clean energy investments, decarbonizing industries, and also reshape the end consumer demand. And I think that's exactly the reason why what we are facing actually offers an opportunity to accelerate the energy transition. You talked about uh, how is industry responding. Let's bring in uh, the CEO of uh, Varro Energy uh, that uh, produces high quality products for the European market. Give us a sense uh, with oil prices at $100 a barrel and we see the, the surge in gas prices over the last uh, 18 months. How do you respond to it? Are there challenges in the transition? Do you say, look, there's a lot of money on the table, so I'm going to keep my head down and, and keep that cash cow coming in, uh, providing the milk or, or, or the money to shareholders? How do you play it, Dev? When you take a step back, I think there is going to be a trend that has not been really uh, in the forefront over the course of the last few years, which I believe is going to be the democratization of energy. What do I mean by that? I think you're going to see a less of dependence on a few suppliers for many, many consumers. So I think you're going to see more and more diversification, more and more opportunities for new energy sources to develop as we move forward. Because I think what this current crisis, this terrible crisis has demonstrated is that there is an asymmetry between producers and consumers, and that cannot remain in perpetuity. In fact, there is going to be an acceleration of changing that. And I think, therefore, today, uh, any CEO of an energy company, any energy company, has to look at two dimensions, which is energy security as well as the energy transition because of this velocity around the democratization of energy, which, if you take a step back, won't occur on the basis of recreating the past. It will be about creating a new future, which means we will also see the second D, which is decarbonization. And that, I think, will be also enabled by the third D, which is digitalization. I, again, create the past, create the future. When we take a step back in our company, obviously what is first and foremost is making sure we provide the energy security, but we cannot just stay there. We have to move forward because we believe there's going to be an acceleration in terms of the energy transition, and we are doing that in our own portfolio. So there are four things we are really focused on. The first is re-emphasizing the current narrative around security, but that is actually looking at both the perspective of providing security, but also reducing carbon as well as ensuring efficiencies. We are operating in our own system at 98% reliability at a time it really matters. The second dimension 
is repurposing, which is about how do you take the existing infrastructure rather than just build new infrastructure? How do you restructure that, repurpose it for the new transition, which means things like moving from gray to green hydrogen, looking at bioprocessing, etc. The third dimension is reshaping the portfolio. The world needs 30% more energy over the course of the next two decades. And that's the story of prosperity. It's a good thing. So how do you kind of you know, reshape your portfolio leading forward into the future? And the final R, reinventing customer solutions. How do you actually provide customers, all of them announced net zero targets, how do you provide them both the security they need to prosper, but also enable them to be successful in the energy transition. And that's what we in Varva are really focused on. Let's bring in Jesse Scott. And in my opening comments, uh, Professor, I talked about this uh, need for access, particularly in Africa, but we've made great progress over the last 10 years in particular. We had 1 billion uh, people around the world without access on a, a daily basis to energy. Uh, about 770 million today, but 600 million are, are in Africa. And I said that COP27 is gonna take place representing Africa in Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, does that come higher on the priority list here right now? And can you balance the two with the acceleration of an energy transition or not, Jesse? Well, thank you, John. You're absolutely right. We face dual challenges, dual goals. Clearly, we need to reduce emissions and we need to enable development. And fundamental to development is access to energy. It's very difficult to do anything else if you don't have energy to be educated, to refrigerate food, to develop a business. Mm. COVID hasn't helped. And in some parts that we're actually seeing receding access to energy. Why is that? Well, prices have become too high for some of the world's poorest in the economic crisis of COVID. So there are some places where supply is available, but the poorest can't afford it. The bigger challenge is getting out additional supply to places where there really isn't the system to provide the access. Biggest thing we need there is help from rich economies with the cost of the money for renewables, for grids, for the big projects that have to happen. And it's the cost of the money that's the barrier. To operate, these technologies are the cheapest. It's the finance. And in particular, it's the finance in markets that are perceived as risky. I think we also need to look at some, uh, some business models. It's easier to do this with not just Western companies coming in, building stuff, operating it from afar, but also with co-ownership by communities, opportunities for local businesses, that creation of local green jobs that's fundamental to making the case that we can have a just transition from the fossil fuel economy, particularly in coal-intensive regions, to the green economy. This brings me to think about one key question that's been affected by the war, which is the question about the future role of gas. For many years, we yeah. talked about a gas bridge we would have less emissions-intensive coal, more, less emissions-intensive gas en route to renewables. I think both the technologies have overtaken that situation. We're now looking really at a cold renewable switch in many places, and the issue of gas prices. There are some places, particularly in Africa, where you will see new gas projects, but really where there's a local opportunity. What emerging economies do not want to do is become dependent on gas imports denominated in US dollars where they have weak currencies and that creates a series of risks. Hmm. So there's an access issue, there's a macroeconomic issue, there's a cost of finance issue, and they're all very, very closely linked. Uh, I mean, just a quick follow-up, if I may, Jesse, then we had uh, Ursula van der Leyen 
uh, go to Senegal, for example, and they have these natural gas reserves, they want to get onto the market, Mozambique, Tanzania. And, and the original message before the conflict uh, that we have with Russia and Ukraine or the war, uh, the message was we don't want to lend to hydrocarbon projects. But then we hear, of course, energy and nuclear is going to be a transition uh, options for the European Union. It, this doesn't square for Africa. If you talk to those ministers, and I have, they say this just doesn't work for us. How would you answer that? Well, I think a key question is what you can build fast. So some of those gas projects have been talked about for 40 years and more. Mm. Maybe the market conditions are now right. Nuclear projects, there's never yet been a nuclear project built on budget on time anywhere in the world. As a climate person, I'll be a lot more interested in nuclear when that's happened. Really, the big opportunity I think we should be talking about from Europe that does match our goals, that does match African opportunities, is something I recently had a conversation with the Kenyan energy minister about, which is the opportunity to use renewables to produce electrofuels through the power to X electrolysis process to produce green ammonia. Now, Kenya is a big agricultural economy. It needs the ammonia. But you can also burn ammonia in most gas-fired power plants. We could do with some of that in Europe at the moment. So let's just not talk about natural gas. Let's talk about the green gases that we can produce from renewables and find alignments there. Okay, thanks very much. Roberto, let's bring you back in and uh, discuss kind of the elephant in the room. Because of the conflict, uh, oil prices hovering up above $100 a barrel. There's great demand kind of post-pandemic here in the surge, rising inflation. Uh, what does that do to the energy transition? And very importantly, what's WEF encouraging uh, next to take place? I think the current context has exacerbated the, the existing fragility of the energy system. I think it's been said already. So there is really the need for this transition. That's the first thing that the, the conflict has, has uh, uh, underline, if you like. And, and in terms of what needs to be done, uh, earlier Moxit referred to all the element of the diversification. Clearly that uh, uh, immediate action that can be taken. There is a second one that is immediately uh, possible to take. It is about efficiency. When you look at what happened in the aftermath of the Fukushima, Fukushima accident, uh, you have seen Japan reducing dramatically their consumption of energy through efficiency measure. So it's possible to take immediate action on efficiency. And then maybe a bit mm. medium term, a bit you know, later on, but starting now, there is this dimension of the uh, legally binding commitments. So energy transition is cyclical with different government. So how you can firmly put in long lasting uh, commitment the transition decision that need to be made now. And so that is, they're not subject to electoral cycle mm. or other cycle. So I think these are the immediate things that can be done and, and need to be done. So they almost have to go into a special, uh, special category. Uh, Roberto, is that what you're saying here? That uh, you pass it in government, it's locked in, and you can't fiddle with it with a change of administrations or leadership? Correct. I, I think there is this dimension also. If you are an investor, it would be interesting to hear from, from Dev. Any, any company appreciate the stability and the visibility so that you can do investment, you can make investment, and, and then you know where it's going to go, the, 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 your investment, your return, as opposite to continuously changing and creating more uncertainty. And that speaks also to the point of Jesse on, on the different in cost of capital in different geographies. Mm. It's important to have that stability, both on the capital, but also on the, on the cost of capital, but also on the legislation, and the two go together. 
Yeah, in fact, let's bring uh, Dev in because you had these wild swings before the pandemic with uh, the ESG concerns kind of driven from Wall Street and the city of London. Uh, and capital was flooding into renewables, but then we didn't invest in oil. Then we had a snapback, as we saw because of the, uh, the surge after the pandemic. Is it important for governments and even bankers to say, here is a very clear pathway, medium-term mapping that we don't do very well uh, to date, as opposed to the wild swings? I'd love to get your viewpoint, uh, Devin, and we'll bring Muxit in. I think, John, uh, there's a reason why we call it an energy transition because um, it doesn't go from A to B overnight. So this is not like telephony. When I was a kid in India, we had 10 million uh, fixed line phones. Uh, you know, 30 years later, we still have around 10 million fixed line phones. We've got around 800 million mobile phones. I mean, that's, you know, rapid transformation, the jagged edge transformation. Mm -hmm. The energy system is a lot more complex and there's a transition that's required. That doesn't mean we actually go slow. In fact, the current events prove that if there's too much of asymmetry, then you're going to be highly reliant on few producers, and that cannot be a good narrative for any nation state that is a consumer. So I think you will see the acceleration. Uh, the question is, therefore, not the end. Everyone agrees that we do need to move faster and swifter towards a net zero world. The question is the how. And that's why I think it's important to think about the pathways, as you referred to it, uh, I think is very important. So the question is, what can you do with the existing infrastructure? I think there's a massive opportunity in that respect. How do you think about, you know, bio? Do you just build new biorefineries? Do you just build new hydrogen uh, manufacturing sites? Or do you start repurposing existing infrastructure? Very, very important. And that's not just in manufacturing. That's also as you think about transporting uh, these new uh, energy forms. Uh, you can use the gas pipeline system to transport hydrogen, for example. I think the second dimension that is really important is to really get clear about uh, what is the sort of way to de-risk the business. And this is the point Jesse was making, which is, I think, a very good one. If you can create an investable proposition, investors come. It's as simple as that. So the investable proposition is about providing a pathway towards you know, revenue, uh, growth, revenue, uh, you know, sources. And that means if you can create that sort of financing flow, you create, again, the velocity of money that goes into the sector. The third is, you know, let's get really clear about how do you move from A to B. And, you know, there is clearly a role that gas has got, which has been recently acknowledged, that, you know, will play a very important role. It doesn't mean that you don't sort of look at the ways and means to kind of, you know, further decarbonize, look at ways to kind of maintain and measure and reduce methane. You know, one has to look at those mechanisms because that will then result in that transition bridge, in the case of gas, over time to hydrogen. And the fourth area that I think is really, really important is to also make sure that we have the ability to kind of build the new forms uh, of production that will be vital as we look at growth. Because the truth is, this is a growth industry. I think it has to be approached in a slightly different way to the past. I mean, think of it. For a millennia, we've had one dominant source of energy. I think that's done. We're going to have more diversification, uh, which books had referred to, and therefore, you know, massive opportunities to create more of a symmetry between producers and consumers. Deb, I remember uh, the OPEC Secretary General and others, uh, a part of the OPEC Plus, were saying we're underinvesting in oil and gas. 
and, and rushing in the transition. Uh, and we're going to have a shock in energy prices, particularly with this uh, post-pandemic recovery. So Mustad, uh, can you now, after this experience that we've seen, and then you layer on top of it, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war that we're seeing right now, can you have this equal weighting between the energy transition and energy security, where actually you can say we have to factor them in all the time. We can't have one and not the other. I guess the answer, John, is that we should, but uh, there isn't a very clear calculus on how you actually create that balance, right? I think what, what is very evident is that uh, this energy transition is as much a demand-side-driven one as it has to be a supply-side-driven one, right? This energy transition is going to entail some pain, right? I mean, as, as someone once said, you know, life is pleasant, death is peaceful. The, the transition between the two is painful. And this, this energy transition is going to be uh, painful because of the complexity it involves, the different nodes it hits. And um, uh, unfortunately, there isn't a clear calculus, but at least there's a realization that uh, there will have to be a gradual phasing down of, of hydrocarbon energy sources and a great gradual phasing up of uh, cleaner energy sources, both by you know, adjusting demand and also improving, improving the economics of supply. The one last point I would make, John, is um, you know, the, the transition is not just going to happen by shifting towards wind and solar. Wind and solar primarily contribute towards the, you know, electricity, electricity side of the energy system, which today is, you know, somewhere between 20 and 25% of the overall energy system. You need a range of technologies. You need hydrogen. You need uh, sustainable fuels. You would need carbon capture. And if you look at any of those technologies, they've been there for multiple decades. And the extent of progress that's been made has been very limited. Is there a, a huge gap here between ambition and action to Muxet's point, though, Jesse? Because I think consumers, A, don't expect to pay a price for the transition, at least in the developed world. And they may get a sticker shock. And, and they're getting a shock now because of rising energy prices and inflation. Uh, and number two, it just seems like it's a very slow pace that they cannot believe in. Is that a fair comment? I think it is. I went to COP26 and it was a very mixed experience. We have these fantastic headlines. Pretty much everybody is now saying we've a long-term net zero commitment. Great. But I spent time with climate scientists. And they were very much in the glasses half empty mindset. Fine. Big words. Where's the action plan? Where's the actual real world impact on the emissions that we're tracking? I think we're facing, I think you're absolutely right, a bunch of pain points ahead. And in Europe, we've been discussing, in the context of the war, the virtue of crisis as a way of focusing on transition. Mm. And I think we've learned a few things from what a crisis can do to help us and not help us. I mean, the positive is it shows that energy is an issue that heads of government need to think about. This is not an issue you can just leave to energy ministers and markets. The second thing is it's reminded us, indeed, that the only thing you can do quickly is efficiency through consumption reduction, and that has macroeconomic effects. Mm. Really, we know that everything else is a bit of forward planning, building out new energy infrastructures for pretty much any kind of fuel is something that takes five to 10 years. Now, that planning concept is crucial because if we're going to accelerate, we need the equipment manufacturers to be confident in planning, to scale up times three, times five with some of the renewable technologies. 
And I'm not sure they're fully convinced yet, and there's a whole set of supply chain issues attached to that. We also need clarity. People have been using the word pathways. And it's true, there are several different potential pathways, because the future is very, very heterogeneous. So Dev sitting in a company is having to make judgment calls about the companies he does business with, the people he buys from, the people he sells to, the equipment that he uses, and whether they see the same pathway that he sees. Mm. There's a, an uncertainty, which needs, I think, a little more guidance from the policy community. And that brings me finally to thinking about some of the things we're not doing. Um, I fully agree. It's not just a wind and solar story. We can do a lot of wind and a lot of solar. We can electrify a lot of loads directly, indirectly using the power to let hydrogen I've mentioned. But we underuse geothermal technologies. That's absolutely, again, a finance issue. They're incredibly cheap to run, but you have to build them. And that's a capex issue. And we have that supply chain problem again there, where we need to have an enormous increase in drilling rigs and a change to building model, business models around how you have those drilling rigs operate. So it's great to have the commitments. It's great to have a discussion about pathways. But then we get into the nitty gritty. And there's a lot of work ahead there for policymakers, for business. Yes, indeed. Uh, Roberto, we have to triple capacity by 2050 to hit the commitments and, and the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, that seems like a, a very steep hill. And you've got your head in this transition literally 100% uh, of your time today. Are you frustrated by the snail's pace? Yeah, that, that's one of the outcome of our report. There is progress, but it's too slow. And, and to your point, there is a huge gap between statement and action. Maybe counterintuitively, intuitively, there is one element that can help address this. And, and if you think at our energy system and our industrial system, they have been built and improved, rationalized over decades and decades, you know, 70 years or more to improve how a chemical plants work, how a refinery works, and so on and so forth. Now we are saying in the next 10 years, we want, to we want to do radical changes. So we need all the elements we discussed, the funding, the legislation, et cetera. We also need one other element, is the paradigm shift in partnership. We have to accept mm. that part of that pain is to accept that we need to have partnership that will challenge some of the maybe antitrust element or other elements that are impeding the speed, right? Because here we are talking about accelerating. So we need more cooperation between customer and supplier. We need more collaboration within industry, across industry, and across stakeholder. So there is an initiative that we are also uh, supporting here at the forum called the First Mover Coalition, is where effectively the demand sector is giving clear signal, we commit to buying green product. And that mm -hmm. will help the production side, the supplier side, to reduce the cost that will green the, the element. So that you can accelerate the, the reduction in costs for those solutions that today are uneconomical. So I think this paradigm shift in collaboration, even if you are in a phase in which we, we talk about the challenges about collaboration, there is a need to really step that up across industry and across sectors. Okay, Dev, I'd love to get your thoughts on the, the lack of mapping and the overdependence for example, on Russia for natural gas coming into to Europe. You know, both uh, governments and industries seem to be lacking medium and longer term planning that I talked about a bit earlier. Was it, in a sense, somewhat foolish not to harvest uh, the potential natural gas from Eastern Europe? I talked about the natural gas 
in, in Africa uh, as transition fuels. I'm not saying we, we have this over-dependency on it, but did we really think it was a wise idea to not diversify sources of energy uh, for the uh, security of supply? I've been in the industry for a while, as you can see by the color of my hair. And um, this is my fifth um, price shock. And this one is actually a supply-driven shock. And the reality, of course, is that uh, this is a story of effectively uh, a supply dislocation that has been caused not by just the events of the last uh, few months, the tragic events of the last few months, but also, frankly, by the lack of diversification in the many, many years before. When you look back, there are clearly lessons to be learned because we would not be in this position had we had a more diversified energy mix. The question really is how do you move forward? And one thing I, I, someone once said, you know, there are many ways to move forward. There's only one way to stand still. So we cannot stand still. The question is going to be, how do we move forward? And I think there has to be a narrative around how do you create the infrastructure for imported gas? Uh, because, you know, there has been over-reliance on Russian gas, but also the reliance on pipe gas. Uh, so therefore, that is one key dimension, uh, not as an end state, but as a means to an end. And I actually think there's a massive opportunity Okay, I want to ask uh, this one question to all uh, five of us here together around the table, and that is the expectations or kind of the demands uh, at COP27 and 28. What sort of signals do we need to have come out of these COPs uh, that the consumer buys into it, but industry gets a very clear indication where we're going? Well, I think there's two signals. The first is we still have a lot of economic models, even models about decarbonization, where we refer to something called the business as usual scenario. Under climate change, if we do not decarbonize, it's so disruptive, there is no business as usual. You see enormous impacts, particularly on water. Too much, too little, wrong time, wrong place. Floods and droughts. That has impacts on food, that has impacts on everything else. If we can get away from this concept that there is a status quo, business as usual, that will help us focus on the fact that the future, as has been said in this discussion earlier, is very, very different from the past. I think we're not completely there yet, despite the discussions about targets. The second thing is we need commitments to be delivered on that have been talked about for the last 10 years from the rich economies to help developing economies financially. Mm. And frankly, trust in that process is now quite low in most yeah. developing economies. There was a big announcement uh, just before COP26 of an energy transition partnership for South Africa. Now, there's lots of work going on with that, but there isn't yet the money committed. There isn't yet the plan. I hope we'll see it before COP27, because that was treated as a fantastic precedent, not just in Pretoria, but around the world. Now we need to see that it doesn't become a negative precedent because it didn't deliver. What are you looking for from your vantage point at Accenture? First and foremost, I think the lessons from COP26, one of them was that uh, all the, the key stakeholders need to be at, at the table. Having all of the key stakeholders at the table is extremely important to have the, the productive dialogue that needs to happen. The second aspect is uh, there wasn't a lot of discussion, as I said before, around demand, right? I mean, I think there are a lot of uh, innovations in play that have to be re-emphasized, including simple ones around efficiency, where, you know, which I would regard as a low-hanging fruit. Uh, which uh, did not take uh, place as much uh, in, in the last year, uh, which need to happen uh, much more so in uh, in the next two COPs. 
the third aspect is, uh, is um, as Robert has said, around collaboration for emerging frontier technologies. Uh, they, what was encouraging in COP26 was the extent of innovation that was showcased, but there wasn't really a mechanism to bring together uh, a lot of disparate parties and entities that were working on these collaborations, uh, whether they are in, uh, in the negative emission space or in the generation development of new fuels, and how do you actually foster those collaboration? Not just think about investment, but how do you bring those communities together? And then the last thing I think we all have to just uh, realize is uh, there's, there is a, a significant risk that we may, may uh, overshoot the 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius, at least in the short to medium term. So there has to be a dialogue around adaptation. And I think that's a topic that uh, should be also part of the, the next two COPs. How does the world adapt to uh, potentially a, um, a temperature increase, at least in the medium term, which may uh, exceed uh, what we all want uh, it to be, to stay below. Dev, can you do it in a minute? What would you like to see from industry uh, coming up at Sharm el-Sheikh and thereafter in Abu Dhabi? I think there are four dimensions I want us to look at. One is what I call transactions. How do you make the current system better, which is reduce costs, reduce carbon. The second is transition. How do we actually invest in businesses on the pathway towards uh, the future? The third dimension is transformation. So from gas to hydrogen would be transformation. And the fourth thing, which is very important, which is societal narrative. How do you make it tangibly good for people? Affordability, access, these are very important dimensions. Just having the economic factors without the social, I don't think creates the right narrative. And so you can get these four T's, I think we would be on a very different path to the ones you've been in uh, hitherto. Very interesting because uh, the net zero language doesn't seem to resonate with anyone now, Deb, so uh, the consumer doesn't understand it. Roberto, uh, what are your thoughts here? I know you're, you're looking for collaboration and you're pushing the envelope at uh, the World Economic Forum. Uh, what are your expectations here for the next two COPs? And let me just talk one, one aspect because many have been covered, but this element of public-private commitment and clear plans for investment where the most of the demand is and will grow. So emerging market, in the industrial system, and in the city, in the city ecosystem. So if we can get the public and the private with clear plan to invest in those ecosystems and in those regions, I believe we'll go a long way to address this paradigm shift that we are talking about in terms of the energy transition. Roberto Bocca, head of the World Economic Forum's platform for shaping the future of energy materials and infrastructure. You also heard Muxit Ashraf, senior managing director and global energy lead at Accenture. Dev Sanyal, chief executive officer of Varo Energy. Jesse Scott, international director of Agora Energivenda and adjunct professor of the Herti School. And the moderator, journalist, John Defterios. You can find the report Fostering Effective Energy Transition 2022 on the World Economic Forum website, where you can also follow all the action coming from the annual meeting in Davos. Follow it across social media using the hashtag WEF22. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Connor Smith. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.